You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome back. Man, I am so fired up about this episode. Today I am joined by Justin Staple. Justin is a producer, director, photographer, and documentary filmmaker. Justin double majored in economics and film at the University of Chicago. He then went on to work for Vice for many years where he produced the series The Therapist. Uh, Worked at Noisy. He worked on Fightland, among many other things. He is an accomplished videographer and stills photographer and has shot the likes of Ozzy Osbourne, Post Malone, Fetty Wap, and Katy Perry, to name a few. In this interview, we dive deep into a bit of his background, uh, the parallels of the creative processes for visual art and music, and we dive into the shallow end of the crypto world, specifically non-fungible tokens or NFTs and their current and potential use in the world of creative media. Justin directed the first NFT music video of this production company, All the Smoke. I went nuts with this one and made a very extensive show notes, so if you hear something and want to look it up later, you can go to futurefriday.net and see if it was uh, if I was quick enough to jot it down. Without further ado, Justin Staple. All right, Justin, thank you so very much for joining me. I'm really excited. I'm a little bit nervous to interview somebody who has so much experience interviewing and being on the the other side. So uh, so it's pretty exciting. I used to be obsessed with being on the other side. And just recently with pandemic, I've emerged on this side. I love it. That's funny. That's uh, one of the reasons partially why I started the podcast. I'd spent so much time being interviewed and, you know, being filmed for stuff and just really wanted to take all those weird conversations that you run into people and do it the other way. But my fiance is also a journalist and we hang out with a bunch of journalists. So it's really fun to kind of get their take on it and, and learn from their world. But uh, I was going to start asking for some background. The impetus for us talking right now for me and reaching out was the huge emergence in popular culture of NFTs and crypto. And you just directed the, the first NFT music video. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So sick. Uh, But first, there was one thing about your history that I found extremely fascinating, and that was that you double majored in economics and film at the University of Chicago. Yeah, I think that really predates doing the first music video NFT like that. (laughs) Um, I knew I couldn't way back then when I chose those majors 11, 12 years ago. I didn't know if I could make money making films. So I wanted to blend the economics aspect into the filmmaking. That's what helped me arrive at VBS TV, which it was called back then, you probably remember, and helped me arrive at what was then called IPTV. You couldn't monetize YouTube or anything else. And NFT, in my mind, is just an extension of all that, yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's funny, our experience with economics coming, you know, being a punk band, was that we got kind of thrown in the deep end to run a small business as we got bigger. So it was like, well, you have to keep track of this shit and we have to figure out how to do it. And then you have an accountant and a lawyer. And uh, since then, found a, a huge fascination with it. Like uh, Freakonomics is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, 
you know, I always like to talk to people like yourself who have a, a better handle or, you know, at least a good handle on the economics of all this. And I find it super, super fascinating. So there is a trail there from you studying that, which is, a, I mean, University of Chicago is a, a pristine economic school, isn't that? Yeah, very. I think it has the best undergrad economics program in the country. Stephen Levitt, who you mentioned with Freakonomics, yeah. was kind of a god there, but also influenced a lot of their style of teaching, everyday application. I even took a very long history on the economics of creativity and um, it seeps through everything I do. I definitely love my economics background and it is you Chicago is one of the best in my opinion. Very cool. Chicago is one of our second homes. It uh, was a place where we recorded two records. It's where we have some of our biggest shows, uh, a bunch of our families out there, you know, our friends and family and just what a fucking great place to be. And, uh, I'm sure going to college there for, for four or five years or whatever was probably, probably awesome. It was. It, it's one of my favorite cities. And what made me want to go there was my love of Chicago 90s emo and hardcore, specifically Cap and Jazz and the Tim Kinsella projects. And yeah, that was literally I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, around Chapel Hill in the Carborough merge record scene. And I just wanted to be in Chicago. I thought they were the coolest bands were from there, the math rock bands, the real emotional, <laughs> you know, and I later went on to make the official Tim Kinsella documentary, which was the, one of the greatest joys of my life. So. Which, yeah, which is so fucking cool to end up like if you told you when you were first getting into them that that was the path that you were setting foot on. That's uh, that's pretty wild to think about that. It's breathtaking. I like it's will always be my favorite project that I did. And I tried to make it a Chicago film. I tried to have like the Chicago color palette in there, some of the architecture in there. And of course, the music and the food. Oh, hell yeah. The music, the food. I always forget. We still when we get kind of a uh, homesick for Chicago, we'll make Chicago dogs and shit like that. And so fun. Our, uh, the studio that we recorded in Atlas was directly across the street from a place called Art of Pizza. I don't know if you ever made it to that restaurant, but that was the best. I did, and I'm familiar with Atlas as well. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right, so you had, uh, you know, I like to have this romantic notion that there's some kind of turning point that gets someone onto what their destiny is or what their life purpose is or just their deepest passion. And you have been a, a visual artist for a long time. And so you grew up in Durham, but you spent time in Princeton. Yes. And that was where you first got introduced to digital video? That's right. Yeah. That was such an amazing turning point. It was right when mini DV technology was introduced and the iMac, the first colorful, bubbly consumer iMacs that had the software iMovie. So like many other young millennials, that was really my first entry point to start creating digital media. And it was a neighbor. It was a mutual friend of me and shout out Robert Dodd. And his dad was in advertising. Princeton's proximity to New York City meant his dad could commute to New York and being close to ads like that, he had an iMac in his house and he had a mini DV camera and it completely blew my mind from like age seven. That's probably when I saw it. That's incredible. That that early, you can see it and latch onto it. I had a stim- uh, similar story. I was always really into music, but my neighbor, uh, one of my best friends, I was actually talking to him this morning for the first time in a while, but his uh, older brother was really into like alternative rock and I think it was like when corn and shit like that first started to come out, but they had instruments and they played them. So being able to go and just see them doing that and thinking, oh my God, I could do this, just clicked. And then I just never took the possibility that that wouldn't happen into into consideration. And then that's 
where the fuck we ended up. Isn't that amazing? When you know, you know, and it's that feeling of you have to do this. It makes you happy. You have to get it out of your system. And what a career you have had from that spark. It's That's an amazing story for me as a fan to hear. <laughs> shout out those kids, whoever those kids were. You gave us an incredible guitar player. Oh, yeah. Jo- shout out to Jody Mayer. He had this big bass. Like At that time, it was really popular to have like the body of the bass really small and curvy on the rest of the bass was big. And you'd wear it down at your knees and just like hit it. Glad that didn't that didn't last. I idolized those same kind of kids growing up. Yeah. All the phases, low low guitar, then maybe a little ska suit, and then maybe some emo dickies and chucks, and it ended with 90s emo for me, really. That's amazing. That was actually segues to the next question, which I was going to ask if you could tell me about your ska band. Yeah, I was in a ska band with an incredibly talented artist who I'm trying to get into the NFT space, Leafgan Matson, aka Every. From, and uh, we had a ska band called The Credentials with our third friend, Connor Drake. I maybe should incredible ska band name by the way (laughs) yes the credentials we loved um mighty mighty boz tones catch 22 coming from jersey was like gods to me even streetlight manifesto although obviously that wasn't as good as the original catch 22 but um yeah we wrote really fun songs um played maybe two shows because we were like very young but we're recording and you know people like oscar isaac have now been revealed to be an awesome ska band so i have no shame in our ska band the Credentials. i love that that's like a, a a little root that everyone connects across to you can always be like oh yeah of course i was in ska band do you so think ska people. will come back now that like pop punk and hyper pop and shit is coming do you think ska will have a big comeback or not so really? my personal theory of why Scott had its moment besides being really awesome in the eighties and the different waves that came through with the West Indian migration to the UK and just such badass music. I think that the reason it became so popular in the nineties was because we had a budget surplus. There's no like insane war. Life was really good. The uh, wages were a lot closer to, you know, the cost of living. So I, my theory is that Scott was so popular because it's like just literally happy, goofy music and that it just tore through, you know, suburban kids and punk kids it was like the accessible hardcore well put and now i hear it in some big hundred gex songs that are streamed crazy they'll have full scott songs full scott breakdowns and i imagine happiness for their fans is like putting on a vr headset being in Fortnite and like skanking within the vr (laughs) in their quarantine bedroom like getting ready for zoom class in the morning that's amazing i really hope that i hear Scott coming from my neighbors or sometime be like, oh my God, it's back. This is a new artist. That'd be, that'd be incredible. So uh, speaking of those kids who would be theoretically listening to Scott or those, th- those tracks you mentioned, uh, getting ready for class and stuff, you seem to be on the forefront of a lot of things pop culturally. You know, the fact that you worked at Vice, Side and all of that, how do you stay plugged in even when there's a generational gap? That is a great question. I mean, I myself am ashamed that I would know something like 100 Gex are bringing Ska back for a young Fortnite generation. <laughs> but through Vice, oh, speaking of my dog is eating my toys. But um, through Vice, you know, when I interned there in 2010, they got me on Twitter, which was like a, a young app back then. It was a new app, experimental. You used to have to text. It was like 2332, 2332, to, to, and then the, te- the tweets would post. That's right. And I was, it was not cool at all. People did not want to get on there, but I was on there to promote their content. You know, that's good intern stuff. And then eventually I became a content generating machine. I became a SEO of a human because <laughs> my job was to generate clicks and to generate traffic. But I, it wasn't corny back then because we were on the forefront of digital media and getting mm-hmm. eyeballs 
to our video content off TV and then eventually taking over TV would be needing to optimize. And a lot of artists get sad about trying to do clickbait, but since then it became like second nature to me. I would always see a current event. Obviously Twitter is my main source of just what's going on culturally and then frame it with my own narrative, <laughs> which is a sad skill, but we monetize the hell out of that skill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, it, it, it's almost uh, completely required. You know, we, uh, every couple of weeks we'll text each other uh, in a group chat with our manager and talk about some of the things that we could be doing for social media. And we just kind of all, little old men now in some regard where we're just kind of don't touch it or don't use it and realize that it is a huge potential for growth and a great way to get feedback from the people that like your music. You know, that's one thing that I always forget about is that, especially in today's date, it's a two way street, you know, like we can really hear what people like about the music or like about what we're doing and all that shit. We kind of don't take advantage of it enough, but yeah, so you worked at vice uh, for a while, which is, I got to say pretty fucking cool as everybody my age and anybody who is paying attention would also think that I remember the first time that I was exposed to vice, I think it was like, 2005 or 2006, there was a, a magazine on the coffee table in one of the studios that we were recording at, and it was a fashion magazine. And at that time, I was as contrarian as you could get in punk rock. And I was like, a fashion magazine? Fashion's fucking stupid. And I picked it up and read through, and they had interviews with Joe Strummer and a couple of other people, and it seemed really, really awesome. And then since then, that had always kind of floated uh, on our radar. How did you end up working at Place? It was right out of U Chicago using the economics and cinema and media studies duo. I was looking at cool emerging businesses that were going to be profitable in the long run. And I read, I believe it was a New York Times digital article about a young company, VBS TV, that CNN was investing in and Spike Jones was going to help creative direct. And in the photo in the New York Times, they were sitting in front of a brick wall with a stack of mini DV tapes. And I remember it reminded me of my bedroom because I had a stack of mini DV tapes and I was like, that's the company. And then I emailed um, their VP of post-production for six months begging for an internship. And I flew out in 2009 or 2010 and interviewed and they were graciously, I think they had hundreds of applications that summer and only maybe 10 to 15 chosen. And they graciously gave me a spot. Damn. That's some horrible odds that, and incredible that you, you overcame that. That's fucking, that's wild. And what a, I really like that you said you were looking, you were actively looking for uh, a place that had growth potential like that. I think that's really extremely wise and insightful for an undergrad. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I was looking I for absolutely a was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that I loved their party aspect the most, and I loved their content the most. And I, I'm a fan of Cinema Verite and Herzog and Shane and some of the creatives there nailed that for a modern generation and. There was that aspect to it, but um, I, like I said from the jump, I had to make a little money, so I didn't want to work somewhere that was going to go under. Yeah, exactly. I always try to wrap my head around this, uh, coming from a very small unit. So there's four of us. We work with a manager. We have a crew now, which is fucking amazing. There's like 10 of us that tour together, and everyone has a job, and we know it. We didn't write them down. Like There's no procedure or protocol or something like that, but to work for an organization as big as Vice that is also a creative organization how does that work like how do you how do you manage the relationships to like be vulnerable enough to suggest things when you're like job is on the line that is a great very insightful question it is not easy i think you see it through the history of studios and that film mank kind of showed how creatives can act with each other um watching them master that skill and expand it 
uh, globally and to a you know multi-billion-dollar valuation was an incredible thing to see. I think hierarchy is important, but then hierarchy, how does that work? How do you say one person's art is better than the other? It's one of those rare companies that did that, and you have to set a standard at to which art is going to be judged. So I think commercial potential for them, most eyeballs, most large audience um, while delivering a social message. So if you adhere to that vision, you are going to be deemed better than work that did not. Once you set that hierarchy and those rules, it became very easy. We could all strive towards the same vision. We saw success stories. Like I always love to talk about Aaron Lee Carr, who was just interviewed recently talking about Vice and she we worked there together and she's a brilliant filmmaker who's now doing massive projects i see buzz of a britney spears netflix aaron lee carr movie coming and you know we she was very a part of what did storytelling look like for iptv what would get us millions of clicks which was actually kind of hard to do back then before like pranks and whatever once we all decided what that was it became easier that yeah it, we, we defined what our creativity was what we were trying to do that's a fantastic answer. That's really cool. I've noticed that the older that we've gotten, or at least myself in my life, when you come into something with a top-down culture or idea, that's how you get to the end product. A lot of times, uh, you know, we would revert away from that or push it away or just not even be mindful of it, just not even think about it. And when you define it, you might turn along the way, but at least you know exactly what you're going into, which kind of has to do with what I was going to say here is that when we were first writing songs, like I wanted to compare our journey as songwriters to your um, journey as a filmmaker and, and uh, director and producer. A lot of times we would just write things at first that were flashy, sounded good, or just felt good. So there wasn't really much thought that went into it. And I was wondering on that videography journey, does it go from just filming something that looks fucking cool, like uh, something blowing up or a skate video or whatever the fuck it is, or something that is really attractive to the human eye? or something that is uh, has a, a high emotional ring to it, to the point where you're making a nuanced and layered piece of art that, like you said, tackles social issues and things like that. Like, How do you navigate that growth? I think it's more important now than ever to navigate towards the second part of what you mentioned, which is creating mood and atmosphere and subtext and metaphor in what images you're using. Now, fast forward to when I started there at 2010 to now, we're overrun with video content, whether it's Instagram stories or YouTube or just, you know, everything. Video content's overwhelming us. So a bigger important now, importance now is subtext and composition of shots. Like you said, will this catch the human eye? We study that in our documentary work. I'm also a still photographer, so it's important to me. And packing your content with as much of that as that is possible. We try to do that in our music videos. Um, try to make every frame iconic. Um, it's more important now than other subtext to what will the string of images say? I love nomad land because I watched it the first time. I didn't really get it. It won best picture of the golden globes. I watched it again and I was like, Oh my God, this film is amazing and beautiful. And it's all subtext and composition. So now with our work more important than ever, focus on your subtext composition and, and the art of the craft. Hell yeah. I think that's great advice. So you mentioned you're a photographer. Um, also a photographer. I, an aunt of mine had asked to see pictures from all the places that I went on tour. And I realized that I had just been steamrolling through the universe, waiting for people to hand me things and wasn't like documenting or taking any time. And I took a four course specialization program through Coursera with the uh, Michigan State University. And that has kicked off a new love uh, for photography for the last couple of years. 
it's interesting because everyone has a camera on them now. So everyone is a photographer in their own right, the way that they share and present themselves and things like that. The biggest thing I've realized that helped me in photography to enjoy it more and to create better ones was the vocabulary surrounding it. So you learn what you can unlock a complete door if you know the words that you're saying around it. Do you have any advice for people who are just like casual photographers? Absolutely. Definitely learn the language around it. Um, you're right. Everyone has a camera now. So a postmodern aspect has emerged as well, where for, for the first time ever, composition doesn't necessarily matter. It's kind of about likes and clicks, which is weird. And I don't even want to get into my sure. <laughs> photography <laughs> idol <laughs> because you, it doesn't matter in the end. I mean, the gre- the best top selling photographers, fortunately, I'm friends with a few and I'd like people listening to look these people up. Awala Risku, Greer Patterson, they sell a work for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Awala Risku shot Beyonce's pregnancy photos and now has a public art exhibition in New York City. Um, what makes these people different than someone getting 10,000 likes on Instagram for something weird? <laughs> uh, All right. Subtext, composition. So young photographers study the work of the people I just mentioned. Learn as much language. Annie Leibovitz has a master class. $99 can get you a master class from Annie Leibovitz. And uh, that will help you. That'll show you everything you need. She's my favorite. To tie it into like a cooler thing, though, like I had to photograph a lot of celebrities for Vice and um, would study Annie Leibovitz. I was fil- shooting so many celebrities throughout the week that I struggled to find unique ways <laughs> to present them. <laughs> Me and my buddy Andreas would just take them to some flowers in the back on the streets of Venice and photograph them and some of the flowers. I, but, you know, eventually, you know, Sean Paul, when I did, I projected the Jamaican flag on him. And uh, there's cool ones of 6 9 where I put make him put money in his face and... Uh, so try to find a unique way. Study the work of Andy Leibovitz. Very cool. Uh, one of my best friends, Jesus, is a photographer, and he bought me an Andy Leibovitz book when I first started taking classes, and uh, it's still down under the coffee table. I fucking love flipping through it. So, is it the Tashin book? I got to ask. It is not. Oh, okay. Soon I'm going to get you the gargantuan Tashin one where it has to be held up, and it's got incredible stuff in there. That's, That's amazing. That's so sick. So you, you mentioned briefly they're doing portraits as part of your work uh, for Vice, and I thought you could talk a little bit about that. Explicitly what I wanted to zone in on was one thing I had no idea about photography when people before people started asking me to do you know, family shots, wedding stuff. I started to do portraits for people's art projects on the side to learn is that there is an immense social aspect with you and the subject that I didn't see coming at all. And uh, I wonder how you navigate that, especially with dealing with people who are so high profile, you know, not just because they're famous, but a lot of the people are are special and and interesting and unique. And you're trying to, you know, how do you convince Jean Paul that projecting the Jamaican flag on him is a good idea? It's one of the most nerve wracking things ever. I was doing two, three a day, some weeks Jesus. through our beats one show and various meetings. And, um, I was always very nervous. I mean, I had to shoot Ozzy Osbourne with Jack Osbourne and <laughs> Alice Cooper with Andrew WK and Lemmy. Some of these people where my hand would be shaking about to press the shutter. Cause I'd be so nervous, but, um, you want to go in prepared. I remember Gaspar Noe and I've had big celebrities where my camera is broken in front Gee, of them oh and the whole God. thing's a waste. People are paying me to be there. Everything's set up and the whole thing's a waste. That's happened to me many times. 
go in prepared, go in with an idea of what you want to do. And then you're hundred percent right. Interfacing with your subject is the most important thing. Usually these celebrities with me, their publicist was making them do it. Like Billie Eilish I've done, has come in, I filmed with and Fetty Wap. They don't want to be there. But as soon as I'm friends with those people and I'm asking about their day or finding something we have in common, breaking the ice a little bit, you're going to get some sick shots. You're going to get Fetty whipping out $10,000 in cash right in front of me. I'm shooting him with the cash and cool <laughs> moments like that. I mean, my Post Malone stuff, I have him barefoot on top of one of his vintage cars and we just film beer bonging and being barefoot and he did a fidget spinner off his five times platinum plaque for white iverson while beer bonging a beer anyone <laughs> had done that with me everywhere at home he's like you, you want to interface with your subject and uh find common ground yeah that's that's incredible i wonder uh, as someone who's met up with people who were hired by magazines and other things to have their picture taken by a complete stranger it has been hit or miss for us sometimes it's mm. um you know, horrible. Uh, sometimes you feel bad if they're really nervous, but the most successful ones were always people that were like you had mentioned you became friends with. There was a photographer uh, named Ollie in Australia. We did a spread for something in Australia. I forget what it was, but then afterwards we're like, Hey, we have the next two days off. We're just going to go to this bar and get a beer. Do you want to come? And we ended up hanging up with them for two days. It was, uh, it was amazing. So uh, I, I like that aspect of it a lot. So how do you become friends with somebody so quickly? I mean, imagine it has to do with being empathetic and being yourself to a degree, you know, like you or you just have that natural uh, personability. Is it because you're from yeah. the South? Yeah, I think the South is a big part of it. <laughs> and, but um, it's hard and it became my job with projects like um, the Tim Kinsella documentary, for instance, or even American Rap Star, which, which we have coming out soon. It becomes part of your job when you're asking your friend to sign a appearance release or sign off on a music cue or um, show up for a shoot or want to talk about their personal life. And it comes for me from a genuine love of art and music and what they do and a genuine, genuine interest in that, but it's tiresome and it's hard. And at the end of the day, especially now when everyone's down and out, it's just the human connection of like, are you okay? Like everything's going to be okay. Like art will come back. Live shows will come back movie theaters will come back i had our last movie was supposed to be at south by and that got canceled and yeah. a lot of public screenings so finding the common ground within us all i think is a beautiful thing unprecedented thing yeah oh yeah and that seems to tie right into the end result of the art as well you know, at least in, in my opinion that's the goal art is going through a weird thing right now i think like I wanted to be a musician like you. I have so much respect for you being able to have success in that field. And now I work with so many rappers who are just um, withered down to first week sales numbers or how many streams they're getting on Spotify. And it affects their mood. It affects their career. It makes them sad. And I'm like, my G, those first week numbers do not matter. The stream <laughs> numbers do not matter. You're a legend. Yeah. Like you're literally a legend. You walk down the streets on Fairfax and people start crying because they see you and you, they run up to you. Like, Don't let any of these numbers control art. And that's what's happening right now. And it's it's making me a little sad. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. that And that's interesting. You mentioned first week numbers as well, because if you look at first week numbers, when we first started putting records out, this is like... <laughs> There's no no numbers. <laughs> and well, go to a Messenger show. But yeah, go to one of your shows. <laughs> and you won't see energy like that on any anywhere else. I mean, that is true legend energy, true fan energy. No God week damn, numbers. Thank you. 
Yeah, no, no numbers. The, numbers. Yeah, the, no one's Taylor Swift just had you know her first week. It was something like it was such a negligible amount of uh, records that were the first week sales that it's just it's not a measure of success. And look at the songwriters that she taps. I mean, these are some really, in my opinion, bad and corporate songwriters. No, no diss to the guy from Fun and <laughs> Justin Vernon, fine. But the way Taylor puts together an album is inauthentic in my humble opinion and just like made for corporate number one songs and which it, is a problem I yeah those influences i uh haven't listened to the new record i gotta listen to it but uh it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> she dropped three <laughs> records and they're all amazing but i didn't see can, that yeah you can just like smell the earl gray and justin vernon's like hoppy ipa and it's just it's not the same <laughs> as hearing skinny love or like the first fun record it's- interesting where interestingly enough where they recorded one of them is at a studio where uh the engineer and our producer is john lowe who recorded uh our record rented world at minor street in philly he uh started working with the national and then you know he runs that studio and, and does a lot up there which is a pretty fun side note that's a hundred percent and i bet you would hear tones of the Mezingers on her recent albums because you know Jank <laughs> Antonov is listening to your records and you know the national <laughs> guy is certainly listening to your records. I hope so. I so. think you'd hear a little bit of yourself if you listen to that one. That'd be incredible. What- we actually, we played a festival with the national early on in Germany. It was one of the, it was Highfield Festival, one of the first big insane European festivals that we ever did. And they played later on the stage that we played second on, I think. But they're wow, their whole crew is from Philly, which is pretty cool. So we were just talking all them. But the singer, they just went up and the dude put down a full bottle of wine in like two songs. I was like, shit, these guys are are, are going to be a rock and roll band for sure. And then they took off and it was awesome. Spinning off of those first week numbers and a lot of those ideas and the music business in general, I was wondering if we could talk about NFTs, So which stands for a non-fungible token. I've been into crypto for a long time. What I mean by into is not really that into. So I have a cursory understanding of how most of it goes. What happened was I bought Bitcoin a long time ago to buy shit online. I bought like Adderall or something, which is now probably, you know, good $25,000 worth of Adderall if it was used as a, you know, measure for where Bitcoin is at today, but non-fungible tokens. So this idea is that you can have a, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but NFT stands for non-fungible token, something that is fungible. You can, as far as currency goes, you can consider a dollar or a bar of gold. You can interchange them. They're not unique. So these non-fungible tokens is a token that responds to a ledger on the blockchain, which is like a cryptographic uh, ledger of software. The way that people are using NFTs in this space, in this moment, is to create a digital collectible. So the first thing I always send to people when I'm explaining it to them is uh, NBA Top Shot. So if you are listening and you want to check it out, that's a, the, probably the, the most popular example that I could think of, uh, the most like um, accessible example. It's basically a digital trading card that is in the form of like a, a clip of somebody doing a slam dunk or whatever, and people are trading them. So it's exploding in value, exploding in, in dollar price value. I know somebody who bought one for $500 and everyone made fun of him and then he sold it for $17,000. I love NBA Top Shot, yeah. So my question is, how is this being applied in this space now that you've uh, directed the first NFT music video? It's very exciting technology, and it's not new technology. We've actually been creating NFTs, we as in me, for at least a year now and talking about minting physical objects um, for since 2017. Um, one of my close friends in crypto, Jesse Walden, founded the company 
media chain that seek to blockchain music rights royalties and embed them with a unique code that would be held on the blockchain. He ended up selling it to Spotify. This was years ago, and now the conversation is back. So it's not new technology, and most people's entry point is buying drugs on the Silk Road, just like you mentioned, using cryptocurrency to use Silk Road. And now people's new entry point is art, like NBA Top Shop. And we're actually bringing that idea to more sports. Like I've been talking about maybe bring it to tennis, owning a backhand. But um, it is extremely exciting technology and extremely revolutionary technology. And it's taken this long to catch on and is now reaching a point of mainstream adaptation that I would have never anticipated or predicted in my life. <laughs> totally. It exploded. I feel like I, I heard or learned about it a couple of months ago uh, in the fall of 2020 and thought of it the same way that you mentioned your friend had sold the idea or the software, whatever, the protocol to Spotify. And my first ears perked up because I we've been talking about a use case for smart contracts and music royalties for years. So uh, our bass player, Eric, and I have been talking about it. Uh, he's into some altcoins. We've been, we would go back and forth about it since Bitcoin first popped like a couple of years ago. But the idea would be that you can mathematically prove a chain of custody for a digital file. In this case, for us, it'd be a song. So, uh, and I know you touch on it on, in American Rap Star, at least the, um, just the music industry in general changing so quickly and changing in ways that aren't necessarily advantageous for the artist. Uh, ways that aren't advantageous for the label. I feel, uh, to quote a good friend of mine, he said that the music industry and the music space is always several years behind the technology space. It could be because we're still picking up shaped, uh, hollow pieces of wood with strings on them, but it, it always missing. Like in this case, you know, Spotify is now here and that is the revenue generator for labels and artists. And, you know, we frankly get fucked uh, quite often. So the idea that you can have this, chain of custody that has a royalty built into it that is mathematically perfect, as I understand it, to deliver the royalty back to whomever owns that copyright or whomever created it is such a big and exciting deal. It's fucking insane. It is. It's insane. And it's solving a problem that I may even address in the American Rap Star sequel now that streaming has really exploded and by exploded i mean multi-trillion dollar predictions from goldman sachs and jp morgan and it's really becoming a frothy overrun economy um now there's a royalties problem and a songwriter royalties problem and it's a multi it's a 350 million dollar problem if you look up what apple music and spotify own oh in missing royalties um it's hundreds of millions of dollars and now you would be able to ident your songwriting royalty so that you could easily track that placement. If a Mezinger's guitar tone ends up on a Taylor Swift album, we should mint that guitar tone so then the influence <laughs> is then monetized like a royalty. And so every artist is going through that thought process where they're like, well, what makes me unique that I can mint and monetize? And I've seen, I, my phone is going crazy every day with different ideas about it from minting a recipe to minting voice memos that someone left behind after they d- are deceased, which was an exceptionally dark use wow, case. Wow, that's Jesus. <laughs> Putting that in my will. The fans would love that item, and perhaps there's no more music for this artist, and um, the fans want to feel like they own something of him. So, Or the tennis use case we talked about where fans of the sport can simply own a Serena backhand or a Nadal overhead smash and have that same feeling of holding it, 
owning an old baseball card. And now we see it in art where like the deviant art heads of the world are finally getting their time to shine and people's is pairing with Christie's and it's angering a lot of people, which I saw coming, but it's interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to give that preface. So it makes people very angry. Uh, I think it comes from all kinds of places. One artist's, should have a chip on their shoulder, you know, graphic artists and stuff because of the way that their work gets passed around used and they can't monetize it. And society doesn't value it the same way. It may value it, but it doesn't value it with cash. So you're not able to make the money that you want to make. So I think that there's two kind of important things that I always try to bring up to people who get wildly upset. I sent out an email uh, to to disclose to a bunch of uh, my music friends and I was like, hey, this technology is coming around. This is what we think about. Or this is what I think about it. This is what I've learned about it. And some people were just angry because they're like, don't understand it. So I think that it's important to draw two distinct lanes to go down on this one for me. And one is that you can use this technology, like we had mentioned, to ident something and then make sure that the royalty goes there. And then there's the second lane, which is the collectible lane, which is a you know, for all intents and purposes, it's a psychological uh, notion. So if someone may have a baseball card, which has an intrinsic value of what you can scratch an itch with it or burn it for warmth or something. And then you have a digital baseball card, which exists only on your phone or your computer, which you spend a good percentage of your life on already. So it seems to me, and do you feel this way, that that psychological notion of having something that isn't is one of the biggest barriers to understanding or to entry for it. I do understand it and I empathize with it. And in some ways I agree with it because what it is, it's very scary and it's very terrifying. And it's about moving what we love in physical world to the online space and for better or for worse due to a global pandemic and other factors, we are forced to move a lot of our existence online which is one clo- one step closer to the singularity and one <laughs> step closer to like complete automation. See, these are the conversations we're having now because we're in a web 3.0 like group of thinkers and we have our own cryptocurrency, all the smoke coin and we have our own digital community. So we're having these big conversations about the effects of the NFT rise and cryptocurrency in general. And when now we take another part of our lives and put it online and put it on the blockchain and further decentralize it. What are the implications yeah. when Elon Musk launches Neuralink and we're decentralizing our brain and minting our ideas? And and that's where oh it's Oh my headed. God. <laughs> Mint your fucking ideas? That's insane. What about minting the government or paying taxes directly in crypto to a smart contract run government? This is like where it's all heading and it's terrifying. So when real musicians and real artists and real photographers see it happening, they're like, I will do anything I can to stop this. Like, I want to go to a gallery and buy a piece off a wall and hang it above my couch. And I want to buy a real Pokemon card. I want to buy a vinyl CD. I want to buy something tangible. But the wave, it's the same in American Rap Star with the rise of streaming. Record stores didn't want to close down. They lobbied on in Washington. Same thing happening now. You can't stop it, though, is the problem. So we have to accept it. <laughs> it reminds me of people freaking out whose living is to make horseshoes when the Model T came around. It's kind of like fighting against innovation, fighting against your your, your eventual demise. Uh, it's very interesting what you brought up about the way that we can use paying taxes. Uh, it's decentralized and transparent. That's fucking huge. Imagine you can bring in accountability in the government and you don't rely on just having to trust someone that you uh, that you vote for oftentimes just because they're the opposite of what you what you hate. 
Um, that's that's a huge use case. We were talking about potentially. Well, I minted. So I gotta say, I minted my first NFT in preparation for this uh, conversation and on this this line. So I took a portrait of my fiance and minted it using a service called Mintable. So I don't know that much about a lot of these different places that are doing minting. Ethereum gas prices are extremely high, and they have a gasless minting service. I don't know what they're getting out of it. It seems like they sell little display things. So you can like buy an, uh, an NFT and you can just have it digitally display if it's a photograph or a video can digitally display on a little frame on your, your nightstand or whatever. You did mention in there really quickly that you guys have a coin. Now, yeah. I don't even know what to ask about that. Which blockchain is it tied to and how do you plan on incorporating it? It's one of the early examples on an idea that we're very early on, and we are big decentralized finance heads. So it's the idea of the social token. Our friends over at Roll.io, which is a great site you should check out. They just launched with Gallardo, formerly of ASAP Mob. They're launching with Terry Crews. They're launching with a lot of great thinkers. Um, The guy who invented Little Michaela, friends with Benefits Coin. And um, creating a social token is a Web 3.0 experiment that speaks to the idea that you can create your own world on the internet and you can have your fans or your supporters or members of your community exchanging all the smoke coin. That's the name of ours, ATS coin. (laughs) I can send you the link. It's available on Uniswap. It's an Ethereum-based token available on Uniswap, um, available on MetaMask if you add that custom token. And it works like a regular blockchain, small volume altcoin. I think our circulating volume is only like $9,000. And we do airdrops of it, and we have a private Discord, and eventually use cases. You could buy screen prints of some of our work with it. Uh, You could, I don't know, buy a music video premiere with it, uh, sneak peek at one of our movies through ATS Coin. Very cool. So would it be incorrect or disingenuous to compare it to, show my Scranton here for, for Bobby Dodd, a lot of times you'll create a closed ecosystem at events, a closed economic e- ecosystem at events. So whether it's Chuck E. Cheese or a church picnic or a, a festival where you need to exchange the controlled tickets, in this case, uh, you would create a currency that can only be used in this space. So at Chuck E. Cheese, you go in, all the games are the same price. You, you have to buy their coins first. They're so not exchanging you know, the, the US fiat cash. Is that what it's like? Yeah, the idea is in that Chuck E. Cheese use case, you're exchanging U.S. dollar. And the idea is, why should this be regulated by someone like Janet Yellen, who seems a bit behind on his her crypto news? <laughs> or Steve Muchinin, I think about a lot how anti-crypto he was. And I, his wife is making movies. I just watched one of her movies, and he's just a bad guy. And why should a U.S. dollar <laughs> be regulated by people like this? Do they really know better than Tom May and Justin Staple yeah. how to regulate a dollar? Or are they listening to private influence? private money and inflating it and setting value based on factors that are probably illegal. Yeah. You know the truth. So, oh yeah. You know, let's reset that whole line of thinking and all of a sudden they're trading ATS coin and Justin in that situation is chairman of the Fed. I'm Janet Yellen. Yeah. Will I be evil? There's plenty of pump and dump schemes going on right now and the SEC is upset. Ja Rule got entangled in a few other people. There's tons of crypto corruption where people play Fed and get burnt. People argue the main stable coins like Bitcoin is a is a big pump and dump, but um, could Justin be. Staple ain't gonna be pump and dump. ATS, <laughs> so, <laughs> you could be a what I'm trying to you could, it's like World World of Warcraft or something. You can be a bad ruler or you can be a smart good ruler. The success of your project, the expansion of your project will kind of depend on that. And um, 
we would never try to do a pump and dump. I could drop ship or do something weird with it. Yeah. And um, those are the people who get burned by the SEC. I mean, Lil Pump has his own coin, Pump Coin. You got Yachty Coin. Incredible. Um, and they have ICOs for you know half a million dollars, sometimes more. That's fucking wild. What do they have in the use case? Are these just collectible tokens for people to say that they have the coins? I believe they were selling them through their own proprietary websites, um, with and you buy them for USD, and then enough of the tokens buys you a meet and greet with a little Yachty uh, or a fan package. It would be a great idea for Mezinger super fans like myself. You could package a reprint of vinyl and only buy it with Mezinger coin, and then it, it's just a way of their, your fans getting one step closer to the artist they love. At least I believe that was the pitch. They were all sold. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. That's uh, uh, extremely interesting. But you put out a limited release vinyl, and I bet it'll sell out in one day. Exactly. Yeah, we, we definitely have before. We've done charity stuff. We've done stuff for us, and it's it, our fans are incredible when it comes to that. I did think one use case we could do would be to do an NFT for the original artwork of records. You could be like, you can be the only person who owns this photograph that we used in the middle of it or something like that. I think some of those can kind of creep into what we're doing, but I don't know. Still, still got a bunch to learn about it. Uh, a side note, when you talk about pump and dump schemes, so for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what that is, it's basically you have a security or a coin or something that's desirable, like a stock, and you get a lot of people to buy it. You already have it. And then when the price goes up because they bought it, you sell it all. And then the price crashes down after you've made a bunch of money and they're left uh, holding the bag. So when everything started to happen with GameStop and stuff earlier in January, I had gone down a rabbit hole. I had been into uh, some securities trading for like the last two, three, four years and got into Wall Street bets like two years ago. And then during the pandemic, everybody's sitting around and I was like, hey, I'm going to read some books and learn about it and read like John Bogle's books and all that shit. But when the GameStop you know, rocket took off. It was like January 27th. It went nuts. And all of these things were getting like thrown at me, all these ideas. And I went down a rabbit hole and joined this discord that these people claimed was an altcoin pump and dump. So basically they're saying that the SEC didn't regulate these altcoins like they did regular securities and they weren't subject to the same laws that protect them. And these motherfuckers, there's like 20,000 people on this discord. They would go Every Saturday or Friday at like three o'clock, I forget what they would organize a literal pump and dump and they would just all go buy the same coin and then they would fucking dump it at like 20%. It was insane. And they were making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And I was like, holy shit, it really is uh, the Wild West with a lot of those things. I would argue the majority of altcoins are by definition pump and dumps because a lot of them aren't proven models. You're just speculating on the price of a token based on some ideas that a group of comp side people have put together. Totally. Uh, so one would argue that a lot of venture capital money investing in app startups or what any startup are also investing on just ideas. They don't have to show any revenue potential, any profit potential. So, But the whole model of altcoin trading is speculation, is honestly forming a community like the Wall Street Bets guys and believing in this idea. Because yeah. remember, it's just like Chainlink is believing in DeFi or there's one called Bao. I mean, there's Dogecoin, which is what? Believing <laughs> and speculating on what? Uh, Mark Cuban just announced they're going to sell Maverick tickets with Dogecoin. And so it's, you know, it's, it's human psychology 101 and it's insane. And we're going to get, what, nine, ten GameStop documentaries. For sure. For sure being made and one trailer just dropped today and i was looking at it and i always say the real story there is DeFi is and when look, you say DeFi, what uh what do you mean by that 
that's the whole revolution happening in crypto right now that uh, it's taking the centralized financial system and decentralizing it on the blockchain. And it's short for it. decentralized finance, right? Is that the, that's right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Decentralized sure. finance, DeFi is a ring to it. And um, Mark Cuban did a long interview on it a f- last week on Bankless, which is a great podcast. And the wave is coming, and it honestly now it's here. It's not even coming; it's here. You're going to be able to get a Gemini credit card where you can pay your credit card off in crypto. We talked about taxes. Cities like Miami are already going to start doing that. There's wow. A, a, Another city outside of Vegas that is already doing it. There's Neom in Saudi Arabia that's going to be all blockchain. <laughs> the wave is here, and now it's just about trying to be early and profit off it. And uh, <laughs> For sure. One of my main concerns with it is the uh, divergence of those familiar and uh, able to access it and those who aren't. So trying mm-hmm. to picture, you know, someone, even though a lot of, you know, everyone has access to the internet for the most part in our, our society, but much lower income people or leaving off people like my parents who are not ready to jump into a situation where their money, especially with the volatility of a lot of the coins. Uh, I often wonder whether or not there's going to be like an offshoot, not like a second civilization or something, but I wonder where this will reconcile itself or what kind of immense frictions we're going to see between people who are either don't understand or resisting and people that are embracing it and just like running into space with it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Cause it's playing out in front of us right now. We talk about always with crypto or any new technology waves of adaptation. Um, first wave, second wave, kind of like ska. And we talk about how <laughs> will Bitcoin become more mainstream and the wave. And we always, you know, we're speculating on ourselves. So we want to see the wave of entry point of, meme nfts is so obvious in hindsight but now this is mainstream this is a sensation i'm going to turn on my tv i'm going to go on twitter it's all going to be nft talk yeah and so what has the human mind done with that idea the environmental impact is brought up almost immediately wow we're making this huge carbon footprint to sell some stupid gifts digital art i agree with that argument it's like we got to figure that out and that carbon imprint comes from the energy usage of computers every electronic transaction on the blockchain takes a lot of energy arguably i'm not an expert on that at all but they're like oh wow um uh there's some crazy style like 15 cents uh of bitcoin is the same energy as a dollar wow or something like something like yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean i'm not surprised at all so the mind goes there and i'm looking at the psychological impact of adaptation and if we can cancel it i mean it's attempting to just like cancel nfts for the environmental impact if we can cancel it, that's kind of what will happen with crypto. I think this is the friction point we would call it. We need to get through. I don't. I don't know how it will happen. I mean, the human humans are just so naturally greedy and corrupt and crazy that this decentralized finance system. Look at the godfather of it, Ross Erlbrick, the guy who did Silk Road. I believe he's in behind bars for like life. So yeah, yeah. this is the way our government. They, they were deal. not happy with what he was doing. And the SEC is not happy with the altcoin pump and dump schemes, and they're they're coming. I mean, everyone's talking about the great reset of uh, the crypto inflation bull run right now, and it's Janet Yellen's getting ready. This new SEC guy was a crypto professor at MIT, so he's real into crypto. But they're going to have to regulate in some very massive way, and this is what we do with innovation. In this- yeah, it's growing pains. Uh- but then in Asia and Africa and um, many other countries – North, South Korea, it's commonplace. I mean, it's huge. And it's in the industries, it's in telecom, it's in the banks, and America's just kind of behind. 
Surprise. Usually, you know, the forefront of the, the, the 20th century, you get to the 21st and here we are dragging right. our feet in the, in the sand. We're complaining and Kicking trying to go and viral yeah. about the environmental impact of them when yeah. China's probably already figured out a solution to offset their carbon footprint of NFTs. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one thing, just to pull it back to the documentary space. So you had this crossing of economics and film, you know, manifested by your degrees. In the beginning of American Rap Star, you do go over the emerging situation with a lot of SoundCloud rappers. Well, I guess for, first for everybody, can you kind of uh, talk a little bit about the documentary and, and what it is? American Rap Star is coming soon. We have another big film festival we're about to announce. It'll happen at the end of April. I've had Congrats. offers to put it on streaming. Thank you so much, Tom. Right. I've had offers to release it now, but I'm actually waiting for some theaters to come back because it's something all the smoke made for theaters, and I just don't think it would be right to have it just go straight on demand. I, I back that. I think that's awesome. You don't want to do the equivalent of what you, you know an album live stream that uh, bands have been fortunately and unfortunately resorting to. I think you should go balls out with the physical release. That's awesome. It takes extreme patience and um, some would say stupidity, but... I just think it's not worth it for us to do digital. We do digital all the time with our music videos, and we actually took the time to make this different than that. <laughs> it wouldn't even like work the same in an on-demand format. So I will be updating the film, though, for present time. I mean, a lot's happened with the film subjects. Mm. Little Pump is a subject, like the Trump stuff. I really want to get in there. Just a lot's happened with all those guys. But it um, follows a group of SoundCloud rappers from Bad Baby, the Catch Me Outside girl, to Matt Ox, who's kind of having a resurgence right now, to Little Zan, one of my favorites, who is a face for prescription opioid mm. addiction, and um, XXX Tentacion and Little Peep. And uh, it's a movie we made last year for South by. And I'm very proud of it. It's just like dark, crazy look at the SoundCloud rap scene that we purposely made not to you know people talk about the zeitgeist moment of soundcloud rap and is it over and you should have released it last year when they were popping but we did release stuff back then we released an xxx tentacion live movie and several things maddox all these mini docs and this is our timeless soundcloud rap movie and uh have you seen it? I have not. No, no. Oh, I'm going to uh, send it to you. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I would love that. Yeah. I think we're gonna, I'll I've been it sending it around, and the feedback has been very good. We played in a lot of festivals. And um, I think me and Tyler, who's the partner at All the Smoke, don't care about the public's reaction to it, as many directors do, like mm -hmm. bad reviews or what people think of the movie. So we're very patient in the way we're rolling it out. But we're dropping a poster and trailer with the next film festival, which is a big festival. That rules. Standing strong like that, I really uh, appreciate that and respect that. As I understand, it's also a documentary that kind of unfolded as you were filming it as well, right? I mean, there were so many things that happened to so many of those subjects, um, some tragic, you know, exploded in popularity. Is there, did you have a end goal when you went in? Um, and did the story just kind of change as you were going? I actually originally wanted to make it a four-part miniseries, like Defiant Ones for SoundCloud Rap. I saw Defiant Ones and I really thought that was some of the best music journalism ever made. And that's the space we were in as well. I was like, I want to do that, but for our scene. And it's hard to find as many experts and smart people and sober people as they found in Defiant Ones <laughs> to talk about SoundCloud rap. We just like, we're getting like no really interesting voices. So I changed the lens to making about the artists. The scene is just crazy. I mean, people, a lot of tragic deaths 
gone too soon and we wanted to pay tribute to that in the movie yeah uh, i cannot cannot wait to watch it um so i got two kind of more questions for you. well one i wanted to get a little nerdy for a second if you'll indulge me what do you uh what do you shoot your stills with i have a number of cameras my go-to during the celebrity portrait vice days which some are available on my website justinstaple.com uh some funny ones mma fighters the kinsella brothers you know my go-to is Canon Mark II with a 16 to 35 millimeter Canon lens. I found myself in tight situations and a really good, reliable flash on top. And would do a wide lens, Mark II, usually on auto, full res. Since then, now I have a point and shoot. My friends opened a point and shoot store in LA. And, no kidding. Um, a little Nikon. Yeah, nice. they're really into that. And then um, 120 millimeter, I have a Holga, which I shoot a lot on my forget what it's called i'll have to look not called the whole goods that's the plastic one well thank you so much for indulging me with that and sorry to anybody who doesn't give a fuck about gear but i had to i had to ask when i had the opportunity mainly if i'm shooting good shit it's on iphone the new 11 max with the wide lens no shit i I shoot all my shit on this now i don't know i'm just i've i don't know hey what's easy is easy you know hey uh so two 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 more questions for you basically one of them was uh so you did so much work at vice and did a lot of directing and music videos and that so do you you would call yourself a journalist yeah that is a great question wow um i think i put that in my bio that like i'm a director producer journalist i've had a really rough relationship with being a journalist where like i have been like silenced and stuff so like i don't know it's just the definition has changed uh yeah I'm going to say yes, I consider myself that, but not a good one. Uh, Fair enough. That's a great, great answer. That's actually what I I was trying to get at was what, uh, how do you define journalism, especially in today's era? I've been quoted on the publicity materials for A24's mid-90s. I said it was film of the year, and they quote me on the poster and in the trailer. (laughs) And then I'm posted in the Little Peep documentary trailer with a quote attributed to me. So... That's how I define it. So, yeah, there you <laughs> Someone go. Someone else called me that. You can prove it. Hell yeah. A part of me in another life or, I don't know, a dimension close to here was a journalist. I really wanted to study it at college because I liked the idea of being able to learn a lot of things, study them, and then kind of distill the information and share it, which I always think is like kind of the role of journalists is like, how do you make whatever you are covering palatable for everyone else or interesting for everyone else um, and where those lines kind of exist. Which is why I do the podcast because I get to talk to people like you. The experience at Vice was par none. I mean, my colleagues were literally Jason Leopold, who's one of the most successful FOIA, Freedom of Information Act journalists of all time. Jason Leopold is my definition of what real journalism is. So I would never try to put myself ahead of him. I mean, Aaron's father was David Carr and David Carr is just incredible. I met him a few times. And so these people, um, Tim Poole, I even worked alongside at Vice. I mean, Tim was big Vice News. He always says he started Vice News. And he was at that time, it was like, let's go shoot Occupy Wall Street. And then people would be like, nah, it's not worth covering. And we'd be like, let's do it anyway. (laughs) It's so funny. But uh, these people are like journalists. Maybe not Tim. I don't know. He's very controversial. But Jason Leopold, that that caliber. And um, to see the work they do, I mean, he was at Vice uncovering stories about torture in Guantanamo and a lot of Hillary's email stuff, even though he was like a raging liberal. <laughs> and so like you can uncover some crazy shit. I mean, we know the truth. That's why we spit in DeFi. Like 
That's what it seems to be, especially the older that I get, the more I realize that the institution, like the monolithic notion of journalism and the monolithic notion of a lot of things like politicians are not what I thought they were. Like if there's not enough people looking and there's more people looking, they find it. And as just government goes, you know, one of my best friends, uh, Scott, our tour manager, he straight up just talks to congressional aides and then they put the thing that they say on the agenda and then they talk about it with the, the congressman. Like we have... Uh, so much more of an influence on the world around us than, than we think we do. I think a ton with the internet, definitely tons of influence. Totally. And so my last question is, where are you going next? So you can choose to answer this however you want, obviously. So uh, I always wonder if you have some kind of project in the back of your mind, uh, something that's like ever present, just waiting to be made or something that you fantasize about after a couple of beers at nighttime. You're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I know I definitely have musical projects that I have folders for on my computer that I just haven't done yet, but I know someday it's going to happen. Yeah. I think, like I said, I like, I'm obsessed with constant output and, um, that helps. I have musical folders too. And I'm like, I suck at music. I really suck Tom, (laughs) but I wake up and I try to get people to open that folder. Matter of fact, don't even open it, sign up for distro kid, drop it right now, drop it on SoundCloud, let the people decide. I kind of had to reframe my thinking of that, and um, so I'm doing a ton. Like I'm doing a new podcast, Smoke and Mirrors with Dash Radio. Sick. Just finished a new feature length script about my hometown, and it's very awesome, and I'm proud of it. And uh, American Rap Star coming out, doing a lot in the crypto space. We dropped the first music video NFT, and we're going <laughs> to mint more stuff in that space, ATS coin. And then I'm doing an, another feature documentary that's moving very slow, so I'm not going to speak on it yet. And then some pretty cool stuff. More stuff with Rod Wave. Check out that new Hard Times album. More All Our Rap Homies. We're doing more shit with Lil Got It. And uh, tons of stuff, Tom. Incredible. Stuff. I'm so excited for you and for the world, uh, for the projects coming up. There's so many notes here I didn't get a, get a chance to get into, but I hope I can get into it. Maybe we'll come on again uh, at some point. Love to ask that so that it's recorded that you said yeah. Um, but yeah, man, thank you so much for joining us. If anybody wanted to uh, check out your artwork or see your work or reach you on social media or something, is there a way that they could do that? I think the Instagram I'm most active on cool. Twitter where you like shit post all day, but <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram and just my name.com. Hell yeah. Well, thank it's you so much. Real, there's secrets in that reel. You can see some of the movie. Hell yeah. Oh, no shit. Well, I'm so stoked to watch the movie. I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll talk to you next time. What an incredibly inspiring individual. I'm really glad I got to talk to Justin. You can check him out at justinstaple.com and at Justin Staple, uh, his production company, All the Smoke. I'm really excited for the documentary American Rap Star to come out. Uh, he did send me a link, so I'm going to check that shit out today. I'm very pumped. Uh, like always, please give me an email, tom at futurefriday.net. I'm getting a lot of people who are asking to come on the show, suggesting guests for the show, just chatting back and forth. It's a lot of fun. I hope you have a wonderful, beautiful weekend. Please have fun and be yourself. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. 
Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!